If you want to learn something new, would you rather learn it on your own from a random teacher or from folks who are the best of the best in that skill? I think I know which option most of you would choose. That's made possible by Masterclass. In recent months, they've added classes from the likes of Ava DuVernay, who gives us tips on how to reframe our thinking in all walks of life. One of our personal favorites recently was the one-on-one time we got with Amy Poehler in her class on preparing to be unprepared. So good. With Ava DuVernay. With over 180 world-class instructors and a 30-day money-back guarantee for new members, there's no reason not to get started today. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash hard things. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash hard things. Masterclass.com slash hard things. Think about how delicately you hold your baby, you dress your baby, and you feed your baby. We do that because they're adorable, of course, but also because their skin is delicate. Know this, there is only one diaper brand that we recommend to give you the gentle protective care your little one needs. And that's Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Their Swaddler's diaper absorbs wetness better versus the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection to keep your baby's skin dry, healthy, and beautiful. And when you use Swaddlers in tandem with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, you'll keep your baby's skin healthy. The wipes are made from 100% plant-based cloth, and you won't have to worry about tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. That's right. So download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. To be loved, we need to be known. Hi, world. Welcome back to We Can Do Hard Things. If you're wondering who this human is on the um, microphone with this incredibly sexy, sultry voice, (laughs) it is I. It is I, Glennon, with a cold. It is I, Glennon, with a cold. And this is what I'm going to sound like for the whole time. Okay? (laughs) But we just show up. And so here we are. And today, I'm so excited that I have such a sexy voice for today because... We are talking about sex, okay? We're going to be talking about sex and women's bodies even more on this podcast than we originally planned to talk about women's bodies and sex because of um, all of the low so many amazing things that are happening in our country right now. But today, our focus is on women and desire and arousal and sexual challenges that we that many of us, it turns out, have. So, babe, Abby, this is my wife, Abby. You may have known her from previous episodes, like all of them. Hi, honey. How are you? Hi, babe. How's it going? Well, it's good. Are you feeling nervous? Because we're going to talk about sex today. And sometimes you get nervy when we talk about sex publicly. Yes. You are. I feel, <laughs> I feel, I feel a little nervous. But, you know, I'm going to get over it because I realize that that's the patriarchy living inside of me and I want to talk about it. And um, so just continue. (laughs) So the reason that's so sweet that you're bringing it up as the patriarchy lives inside of you is because 
I told you that I was going to introduce the idea of women struggling with sexual desire inside their relationships. And I do think that people might find it interesting that even though you and I have a very sexy, very wonderful romantic love story that the whole world knows, you and I also struggle sometimes with low sex desire. Would you say that? Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> here, here I am. My ego has to speak up in moments. Yeah, I mean, for sure. We we go through our ups and downs and it's confusing. It, it is. It's actually a confusing thing for us. Yeah. Yeah. So because, and this is completely stereotypical. I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but, you know, a lot of times we consider the woman in the relationship is the one that has the low sex drive. And we're two women. So you can, you can imagine that sometimes we just aren't driving so fast. Right. <laughs> well, low desire affects up to half of women over the course of their lives. So if you two happen to have the halves at the same time, that, that theoretically is 100% of the time. Right. So that could be a challenge. That could be tough. Right. But it is true. I'm so glad we're talking about this because it we're just normalizing what feels like not a normal problem, but is in fact a normal problem. So half of women, low libido, 31% of women have lasting and distressing sexual problems. Mm-hmm. Um, 26% low arousal, 21% difficulty with, or- with orgasm. So of the folks that are listening to this, any of those issues applying to you, makes you a very typical woman. Cool. And we have someone here who's going to help us wade through all of this and who is a just delight expert in this field. Babe, would you introduce Dr. I'm going to introduce her. Dr. Lori Brado is a professor in the UBC Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. She is also the executive director for the Women's Health Research Institute, one of only three institutes in Canada devoted to advancing research in women's health. Dr. Brado was recently featured in the Netflix series, The Principles of Pleasure, which we loved, and is the author of Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire, and forthcoming, The Better Sex Through Mindfulness Workbook, A Guide to Cultivating Desire. Welcome, Dr. Brado, or should we call you Lori? Please, we're going to get really personal. So please call me Lori. It's such a treat to be here. Thank you. Dr. Brado or Lori, I would like it if you would call me Dr. Doyle, though. Okay. okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. We are forever talking on this podcast about uh, the thing that screws us up most is the picture in our heads of how it's supposed to be. So one of these things is that we believe that if we love our partners, and we have a strong relationship, we are supposed to maintain a strong sexual desire for these people forever, infinity, and beyond. Um, (laughs) And that if we don't have that strong, spontaneous desire, that there means there's something wrong in our relationship. And hold on, because this is what, this is not a perfect comparison, Lori, but this is what we were talking about the other night. Okay, we hate diet culture here at this at this podcast. It has wreaked havoc on our lives enough. But I just read this story that one of these crazy diets 
um, was proposed that if people ate the same food again and again, over and over again, because familiarity reduces desire, they would eat less. Like that people are actually trained that the more they're exposed to the same thing over and over and over again, the less they want it. Are you picking up what I'm putting down here, Lori? (laughs) Yeah, and absolutely. And part of it is training, but a big part of it is just our basic biology. When things are new, novelty, the unknown, there's a particular part of our brain, the reward center, that lights up. It shoots out dopamine And when things become less novel, there's less lighting up of that area. So it's a purely physiological phenomenon that you can take to food, to sex, and to lots of other activities. So when we we look at it through that lens, we realize, well, of course, love doesn't equal desire. They're not synonymous with Mm. each other. In fact, we can have lots of examples where we crave someone sexually and we don't love them and we sort of accept that. So then why is it then when we're deeply in love and years go by, decades go by, we think that the loss of desire means I don't love that person anymore. It makes it makes no sense whatsoever. Okay. So let's just start there. Is everyone okay. hearing that? Okay. There is nothing wrong with you. It doesn't mean you're with, you might be with the wrong person. We're not saying you're not, but just because <laughs> you don't have desire after low so many years, it does not mean, so, so for example, if you love meatloaf, okay, if you love meatloaf, (laughs) it's like your favorite, but you are fed meatloaf every day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner over the weeks and months and years. And then suddenly a veggie burger walks by. (laughs) All right. You might be so sick of the meatloaf that you suddenly fall in love with the veggie burger, but Dr. Brado, if then you marry the veggie burger and you have veggie, then you're going to see a chicken that walks by. And and so none of this has to do with not having feelings for the meatloaf that are real. It's just, we're trained. Our bodies are made to get sick of the thing that we're stuck with. So first let's just start off that. Would you agree, Dr. Brado, that those of us committed to monogamy Happily committed. We are working under suboptimal conditions. <laughs> Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. At, and that's at the best of time. That's <laughs> that's also assuming mood is in check. You've slept all night. You don't have indigestion. You're awake at the time that you're planning sex with your partner. Mm. Oh, and by the way, all those same criteria apply to your partner as well. Kids are not in the room. Dogs are put away. I mean, there's multiple things that sort of have to be in place in order to even create these suboptimal positions. Mm. So when we look at it from that perspective, we kind of give ourselves a lot more wiggle room to say, you know what? Sometimes good enough is good enough and good enough sometimes is great. Mm. And striving for perfection actually only sets us up for failure because it takes us out of the present moment. We're constantly thinking about either how it used to be in the first two weeks of the relationship, or we're fed these false pictures and stories in the media and elsewhere about how things are, quote, supposed to be, and and they're really not. And that a lot of that contributes to that 41% figure that you cited at the beginning, um, which essentially tells us that when we look over the course of a year, 
across women, across ages, across cultures, across social determinants. So we're not just talking about women in their 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's no relationship between age and desire. Um, but this phenomenon of de- decreasing desire as the relationship continues on is near universal for women. Mm. I'm going to just stick in there men as well, but I know we're talking about women today. So we'll just talk about women. And you said that the stories, the stories in our heads, and one of the things you talk about is how we internalize those stories and then that becomes part of who we are. So uh, there's a lot of us are clearly struggling not all of us are struggling. And your research has identified a few things that are big predictors of those who will struggle sexually. And stress and this kind of compulsive multitasking Mm -hmm. is clearly the biggest one, which we're going to get back to because it's huge. But you also talk about this interesting one, which is that how our personal beliefs about sex, or in other words, our internalization of those stories that we have heard about sex in our bodies, predict our future sexual struggle. So what mm. what does that mean? And what mm-hmm. are those beliefs and stories that mess us up? Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, the beliefs and stories might start out totally benign, right? Mm-hmm. You might be a young kid and you are taught by a parent or someone else that you wait for sex until you find the person you love, or depending on what state or province you live in, you wait until you're married and you find your soulmate until you have sex. Um, And at the time, you don't question these beliefs because you're a young person and you're starting to discover your own sexual identity. You just sort of take them on. And then other experiences in life might happen. I'll give an example of uh, one experience that I hear all the time, and that is the young girl who uh, discovers her body, begins touching, maybe she's masturbating, parent walks in, scolds the child and said, oh my God, what are you doing? You can't do that. That's wrong. That's dirty. And again, maybe Mm. in the moment, the child says, oh, okay, I guess I won't touch myself there anymore. Files it away, Mm -hmm. but she internalizes it right? Because it's not just those two instances that I've just given you. It's repeated instances. It's that girl who then grows up and takes on the belief that in order to be loved and admired by a partner, I need to have sex even when I don't really want it, or I need to endure sex even if it doesn't really feel good. Mm -hmm. And then there's other beliefs around to speak up and say what you like about sex is wrong and dirty and you're a nymphomaniac. That that legacy of a term that was actually a diagnosable condition until, if you can believe it, 1980, <laughs> diagnosis of nymphomania. So you've got these sort of you know small instances that add up over the course of a person's life. Mm-hmm. And then she grows up, she's mature, she's smart, she's got access to good healthcare, but these internalized beliefs are still operating below the surface mm-hmm. and they become triggered in sexual encounters. They become triggered when she's feeling emotional and that's when you see the consequences of them. So they're, they're most certainly not benign when they add up over the course of your lifetime. It's our conditioning, right? I mean, that's what mm-hmm. we, 
I talk so much about an untamed, the whole idea yeah. of how do we even know we're not starting at zero, at zero. We're starting at negative a million because we have so many things to unlearn. And it's not just what we get from our families, which is all messed up, but the media, our religions with the mm-hmm. sex shaming there and the women shaming there, even in schools, all of the messages we hear about the girl who, who the girl who's a slut or the girl who mm-hmm. doesn't put out or does put out, there's, it's, we're inundated yeah. with sex messages our, our entire lives. And then when we get in relationships, we're just supposed to suddenly see it as something that is good. That's very hard to unlearn all of that. I have another question for you about this particular moment. When I was thinking about this conversation, especially during these past weeks, I remembered, I don't have this issue anymore in my marriage, but in my first marriage, I was married to a man. And I had this thing that contributed to our sexual struggles, which was that I was unable to turn off. I was unable to compartmentalize what was happening in the world and to women and to women's bodies to feel safe in my own bed. I brought anger from what was happening to women in the world into my own sex life in a way that I felt unable to bridge the gap between the two of us. Like when I was supposed to be intimate with my ex-husband, I felt pissed off that he wasn't under attack like I my body was out in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I find it amazing. Some of my friends feel that way. Many of my friends don't. But I kind of find it amazing that more people <laughs> don't feel that way. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's it makes me so sad. Um, and at the same time, like other people that you know, I I hear this all the time. And it's a byproduct of a very heteronormative worldview that we have that also applies to sex, which again, first of all, portrays sex as something you do to have babies, right? It's something for procreation, not Mm -hmm. recreation. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of women's pleasure, first of all, when you look at kind of traditional penis and vagina sex intercourse, the vagina is not uh, a pleasurable vesicle. There's very few pleasure nerve endings in the vagina, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Compared to say the clitoris, which is the most innervated, the most nerves of anywhere in the human body in males or females. And and yet the heteronormative view, which prizes penis and vagina sex, you can't talk about that and also not accept that, well, of course it's not pleasurable for women. You're stimulating something that is not very pleasurable and in fact can create a lot of pain for women if they're Mm -hmm. not lubricated and if they're not present and they're not in the mood. Um, so that's one thing is we're we're kind of working within this worldview that we don't often think about until we pause and we get angry and we want to fight back against it. Um, but the other thing, Glennon, that your story uh, really personifies is the fact that we multitask and we live in a multitasking society where our mind is elsewhere, right? We're sort of talking, having a conversation and we're thinking about something else and we're ordering groceries and we're watching the kids soccer game from the sideline and we're doing all these things at the same time. And in the moment, it feels really good to be doing all of this. You feel like you're on top of it. Many of us feel like that's the only way to stay on top of it, Mm -hmm. but it trains our brain to not be 
present, mm-hmm. right? And emotion and fear further fuels that. So if we feel like we're inadequate, we're not doing enough, it's going to dial up that multitasking tendency. And we're going to bring it into sex. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you find yourself feeling very safe. You feel you feel wonderful with vulnerability. You don't need to multitask. The heteronormative view is gone. And suddenly you're feeling sex for the first time. Mm-hmm. Maybe. But just going back to what the first idea was before I let it go and then I'll let it go. If if what I'm being mindful to, because I'm bringing my mind to the present moment, is a sex act in a bed with a man who is recreating the dynamic that's happening outside of my bedroom, which is what happens here matters for my pleasure and my power and my experience being translated to just like a vaginal intercourse, then actually me being mindful to what's happening in that moment isn't something that makes me feel safe and makes me feel loved. It's actually a recreation. So it's not in that moment, in this particular situation I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. it's not actually my problem because I'm multitasking. It's actually because in this bed, we are recreating a patriarchal dynamic that happens to me every damn day outside of this bedroom which is that my experience right here doesn't matter and that my body is being used for your pleasure. Right. And I think that that's, I mean, it's just like a, it's a shout out because in this moment we're in right now, it's a a Mm -hmm. historical moment. It's a good bridge between what the wisdom of the research that you're showing to us and the, the just really difficulty accessing it in this moment in time, because your research tells us that women not being connected to our bodies, being distracted, being worried are the things that literally kill our ability to have satisfying sex. But we're living in a time in which, you know, two hot minutes ago, a man who admitted, you know, sexually assaulting a woman was elected to the highest office in the land. We're living in a moment where through the overruling of Roe, the government has claimed our bodies as a means of production over which we have no control it is very tricky to experience and feel a sense of power and dignity and autonomy in our bodies in a moment in a nation that has dictated that we do not have any. (laughs) That's right. So before we move on to all the ways, how are our experts and researchers like you dealing with this very real phenomenon of women saying, wait a minute, the personal, the most personal is the political. Yeah. And how a man who is not focused on a woman's pleasure right now in the bedroom points to a bigger issue. How are you dealing with women, women's rage about that? (laughs) Yeah. So being able to say no is part of our power. Mm -hmm. And that's also something we've never really been taught Mm -hmm. to do, right? If Mm -hmm. anything, it's say yes, like a nice girl. Mm -hmm right? Accept the hug from whoever gives it to you. Mm -hmm. You just um, acquiesce and you say yes. And now is a moment in time where we all say no. Mm -hmm. We say no to the things that give us pain. We say no to these dictators that are claiming 
that they know more about our bodies and our pleasure and our rights than we do. Mm-hmm. And we say no to sex partners who do not have our pleasure at the center of the encounter. Yes. Mm. Yes. Mm. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Mm. The weather's getting warmer, which is wonderful because we can say bye-bye to big bulky sweaters and jackets and hello to shorts and tees. I just ordered three of Quince's muscle tanks. Check out their European linen shirt dress. I got it in the blue and white stripes. Classic. It's beautiful and summery and gorgeous and linen, and it was less than $50. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, and Quince cuts out the costs of the middleman and passes the savings to us but they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. You will love all of it. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash hard things for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E.com slash hard things to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash hard things. Thanks. Okay, so now let's get into some of your work about sex and mindfulness. So one of the many reasons why your work is so fascinating and unique is because it teaches that, while wow, this is so fascinating, that so many of us, of women, report decreased arousal or desire over time, that many of the women that are reporting this actually are experiencing arousal. It's just that our minds are so disconnected from our bodies that we don't even notice it. Okay. This is what Mm. blows my mind. So can you talk to me about the study in Mm. which you found that women actually were getting physically aroused? We just weren't freaking noticing it. Yeah. This has not been one study. This this has been literally hundreds of studies now uh, that, so let me just kind of paint the picture for you. So woman comes in to a sexual psychophysiology lab at usually at a university. They recline back in a comfy chair. They use a a little vaginal probe. It looks like a tampon. They insert it into the vagina and then they put their hand on a lever. And this lever is on the armrest of the chair. Then they put on their headphones. Experimenter leaves the room, makes sure it's the door is locked and then they start watching erotica. And I, I could take a detour into the differences between erotica and porn. Suffice it to say that when we do this kind of research with women, we use female-friendly, ethical, uh, female-directed erotica and not porn. Mm-hmm. So we can just put a pin in that one for <laughs> later. Um, so she's watching the film. And within a few seconds, and of course, we're in the next room just watching the computer screen to see what is her body doing in the moment. Um, And you can see within a few seconds of the erotic film showing up on the screen, an immediate spike in her physical response. There's an increase in blood flow, blood pressure, uh, this kind of stimulation that goes down into the vaginal walls and into the vulva and into the clitoris. And then on the separate screen, we see the graph that corresponds with how she's feeling in her mind, right? That lever that she's moving with her hand. 
and it's not moving. <laughs> and we're waiting, you know, the film is progressing. It's getting pretty hot and heavy and there's a slow increase, but certainly not a spike. And then the movie is over. And then we kind of go into the next room and we ask her, how did that go? And she says, meh, it was okay. <laughs> I was more fascinated by the artwork in the background than what the two actors in the film were doing. <laughs> we call this non-concordance, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of disconnect between physically the body is, there's. it's almost as if this is a reflex. This is an automatic response that happens when she views something sexual, erotica mm-hmm. in this case. But her self-report is not connected with that. They're not in alignment with each other. Contrast that with the dozens and dozens of studies that have been done with males. You can probably guess what those two graphs show. They're in perfect alignment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when the erection starts to increase, so does his self-report of feeling tuned in. Now, there's some exceptions to, to this for both men and women, but for the most part, this non-concordance between the body and the mind is a fairly well-established phenomenon. And this, this <laughs> blew my mind because what you describe in your research is your focus on mindfulness and presence isn't about the kind of presence shaming that we get all over the world. Put your phone down, be there with your kids. You should, you know, optimally present at all times. What you're describing is about actual sexual functioning, the mm-hmm. the cycle with the brain and the body that it's like, it's the brain body cycle is how sexual arousal actually works. So when you're mm-hmm. engaged in sex, like, like say that, say the person in your experiment was actually engaging in sex with a partner instead of watching a film. So her body is showing up, but her mind isn't showing up. And that's making the sexual process end. Your mind isn't noticing that the the blood flow, the skin sensation, the physical arousal. And so even though the body's responding, the brain is not acknowledging it. So it's not feeding back to the body the information that it needs to continue to respond. So it's as if it's not happening in the body at all. That, so that, arousal stops, absolutely. done. Arousal stops, yeah. It's it's not just a reflex. So there's been lots of researchers that have asked, um, and lots of people have asked, why, why does the body show this automatic vaginal response to something erotic? And there's different theories. There's theories that it's a way to protect a woman from, say, a urinary tract infection or other infections that go up into the pelvis, et cetera. Um, But then there's the feminist viewpoint, which says, yes, but that is also then accepting an unwanted sexual encounter if her mind is not right. If it's just an Mm -hmm. automatic lubrication response, Mm -hmm. ultimately what's most important is what her mouth says, Mm -hmm. not what her vagina says. Right. Mm -hmm. But Amanda, what you're describing, you know, the body starts, but it requires the brain to say, I like this. This feels good. I feel safe keep going in order for that physical response to continue and to be experienced as pleasure. But that's where it stops for, for again, 40% of women. It's just wild. So your brain and what you say about this is that your brain is your most powerful sex organ for this reason, that your brain needs to feed back the loop to tell your body, yes, we're going there. We're interested 
in arousal right now. We're paying enough attention to our body to know that this is happening and we're going to facilitate it continuing to happen or not. Mm -hmm. And this is my question about, because the male chart going in alignment and the woman's chart, not at all. We know that when our brain is filled with stress and anxiety and self-judgment, that it prevents us from feeling aroused. Is the reason we see this showing up so differently in men is it because they don't have the mind-body disconnection or is it because they don't have the stress? Or the shame <laughs> or the shame or the conditioning. But they do. Or the patriarchy. Right. But they do, right? Because men have all kinds of shame about sex. Like, am I performing? Yeah. Am I whatever? This is what Sister yeah. Nine Abby can't get at. It, it can't just be that we have grocery lists in our brain. Like, no. it can't. Do we, are our brain and body connections actually made differently? Yes and no. So, so, uh, you know, if we kind of go back in time, let's go back, you know, I gave the example of the young girl touching herself and her first encounter is the angry parent that says, put that away. That's wrong. And that's dirty. The young boy, on the other hand, is in the bath. He's two years old, three years old. The bath water is hitting him and hitting his penis in a way that feels really good. And it's normalized and he realizes, oh, baths feel really good. This is very exciting. Oh, look, I can see it grow. And there is this intense normalization hmm. that happens with experiences like that that are not necessarily sexual. They're just developmental, but they feed future erotic connection uh, and erotic pleasure. And so it's a completely different developmental pathway in boys and girls that starts out at the earliest possible age. So you right. really do feel like most of this is conditioning. Is it shame? Shame Shame separates our mind from our body all the time. So is that what happens? That, yeah. that shame enters a, woman, a little girl's life early and, and ejects her, her mind and her body from each other? Yeah, sh shame, shame is huge um, in exactly the way that you've described. Um, but there's also just basic lack of information and lack of education. So as an example, here in Canada, once one of our more progressive um, sex education programs that was in Ontario for years and years, at the age of five, involved teaching children the, the correct anatomy, right? What's a vulva? What's a clitoris? What's a vagina? Mm -hmm. What's a scrotum? What are testicles? And a few years ago, that was completely replaced with um, a very generic system, which referred to the entire anatomy as the genitals. Unreal. And the view among those making decisions was that it was developmentally inappropriate, that it might instill fear in these young children if they knew what the clitoris was and could point to it on a, on a piece of paper. And the real danger... Mm -hmm. is that those kids are now going to grow up and through their teenage years and they're going to have different issues that arise or let's say pleasurable encounters that arise and they don't have the language to be able to say, touch the labia, avoid the clitoris, touch the perineum, or I was molested in this area. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's been other research that shows Kids who are not taught the correct genital anatomy words later on, should they encounter sexual assault, they're less likely to report it. Ugh. 
right? That's because if you control language, you control a person's ability to express herself. And that keeps people in all kinds of dangerous situations. It's a very good tool of the patriarchy to to control our language and not give us the words we need. Introducing shame. Yeah. If that word is so shameful, you can't even teach it to me. What happens when I let someone do, which is my view, I let someone touch me in that place that Mm -hmm. is so shameful, you can't even say the word to my face. Mm -hmm. It's all built in. With the 2024 games in Paris on the horizon, I've gotten nostalgic about my international career. And when I look back, there are a few things I would have done differently to make sure I made the most of my time abroad. And one of those things was to learn a non-English language more fully. A daunting task, yes, but a much easier one when you consider that Rosetta Stone can get you fast language acquisition through their intuitive, research-based, dynamic immersion approach. That's why they're the most trusted language learning program and have been for years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. Whether it's Dutch, Arabic, or Chinese, don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, We Can Do Hard Things listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash we can. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash we can today. I want to ask you and talk about some of the common signs that make us disconnected from our body during sex, like needing to have the lights off or moving your partner's hand from a part of your body that you're not comfortable with, being worried about how your body works or your response. Can you talk about some of these ways of spectatoring? Yeah, Mm -hmm. because people don't even know. A lot of people who are listening might not even know if they're disconnected from their body. How do we know? What's this? What are the signs? Yeah. You mentioned the word spectatoring. It's an old term and it basically refers to this phenomenon that during sex, you are watching yourself from the stands. Mm-hmm. You're not a player on the field, right? Mm-hmm. You're kind of viewing from a distance as opposed to engaged. And this phenomenon of watching yourself from a distance, number one, is really common. But number two, it's usually wrapped up in a lot of judgmental statements like, oh, I don't like that part of my body or, oh, I I sure hope my partner doesn't touch me there because that doesn't feel good or I have stretch marks, et cetera. The list can go on and on and on. And so what happens is um, very often, and this is a bit of a gendered phenomenon, women are more likely to get wrapped up in these kinds of negative self-judgments than men, although they're certainly not immune to it. And um, I see a lot of young men with low desire who report a lot of the same kinds of issues, including body image issues. Um, But that spectatoring, that tendency to not be there, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but rather Mm -hmm. to be thinking, oh gosh, their hand is moving. Please stop. Please stop or moving out of the way, which then creates tension in a body Mm -hmm. that then blocks the sexual response. So holding tension 
or maybe starting to hyperventilate a little bit, kind of creating that stress response. So the sexual encounter for a lot of people can be a stress response. It can Mm -hmm. be as if, you know, they're going through traffic and they feel like they're going to get hit by a car. It can be that magnitude Mm -hmm. of the stress response system kicking in, which is the system that works against sexual arousal, right? For sexual arousal, we want the parasympathetic nervous system, the system that allows us to be relaxed and allows blood flow to go to the parts of our body that promote arousal. When we're in a state of stress, um, blood gets shunted to our big muscle groups. Why? To allow us to run the heck out of there or freeze and hide. Mm. That's that's what happens during the stress response. It is antithetical to promoting sexual response when we get into this kind of spectatoring mode. Hmm. That's a sign then. People who are spectatoring, yeah. who a, a person who's in a bed and in the middle of sex and they they uh, they see themselves from above. What are some other things that that happen to people who are um having the mind-body separation. Yeah. Sometimes they can be totally benign distractions. You find yourself saying, oh, did I turn off the oven? Mm -hmm. Um, Is the milk expired in the fridge? What time do I have to pick my kids up from school tomorrow? So you you start going through the random list and suddenly that's when all of the things that you had forgotten in the rest of the day, that's when they surface Mm -hmm. is right (laughs) in that moment. And the kind of really dangerous thing is that because they're benign, they sort of flow under the surface and we say, oh yeah, I'll just let these thoughts be there. It's okay. But ultimately, again, because of what we talked about earlier, this this really critical brain-body connection, even those benign thoughts, if there are enough of them, it can either slow down the sexual response. It can be the reason that women don't reach orgasm. It can contribute to, say, arousal going down and thus sex hurting, right? Mm -hmm. Or perhaps in the start of the encounter, she feels lubricated and then suddenly it stops. Um, So they're not benign when they add up over over time within an encounter, but then over Mm -hmm. multiple sexual encounters in a person's life. And also your own performance, right? That's a big one. So if people are thinking, oh, my orgasm is taking too long in in that too long to arrive, I should say, that that messes with people actually reaching orgasm because they're worried about how they're performing as opposed to being in the moment, right? Yeah. So so let me say something about orgasm because um, I, I was just reading something this week about this phenomenon called orgasm coercion. Ooh. And orgasm coercion uh, big uh, paper done by my colleagues, uh, Chadwick and Van Anders, they looked at, first of all, half of women will say that they've been in recent sexual encounters where they experienced orgasm coercion, which essentially is a partner pressuring, manipulating, maybe doing something physical to really encourage her to, aka force her to reach orgasm, right? Mm. Now, for some partners, the idea of having an orgasm at the same time for them might be a sign of good sex, or it might be a sign of their own performance and ability. So because of this orgasm coercion, it has a lot of striking similarities to sexual coercion, the same kinds of things, manipulation, Mm -hmm. um, coercive behaviors, coercive words, and it, it can be very, very dangerous. I bring it up only because there is a huge range in the number of 
seconds, minutes, let's say even hours that uh, an individual woman might take to reach orgasm. And it's totally dependent on so many other factors like Mm -hmm. her level of energy and fatigue. And does she have enough external lubrication? And does she have pain in the moment? Um, so we, there, we, we want to just be really careful with orgasm Mm -hmm. that there is no standard amount of time. And in fact, a lot of women will say, I don't, I don't even need an orgasm in this encounter for it to feel good or feel pleasurable. Mm -hmm. In fact, that kind of emotional orgasm or emotional satisfaction makes sex rewarding for me. Maybe Mm -hmm. not every time, but the orgasm itself is not the sign of satisfying sex. Hmm. Yes. Yes. Okay. Wow. And also while we're on it, because for till the day I die, I want to, everyone to repeat this in their heads is that contrary to the picture in our heads, how we've been told 80% of women exclusively have a clitoral orgasm, correct? And if they are having a vaginal orgasm, it's usually because there is some uh, stimulation of the clitoris. Yeah, that's mostly right. The 80% figure is right. It's 80% of people with vaginas, which includes women and trans men, uh, before gender affirming surgery, 80% of them will not reach orgasm from purely vaginal stimulation alone, whether it's a penis, a dildo, a finger, what have you, another kind of sex toy will not reach orgasm through vaginal penetration alone. The clitoris is far more reliable um, because it has deep and very extensive tissue and nerves that go far below the surface of the skin. Um, And so even among those female-bodied and women uh, persons who do have vaginal orgasms, for a lot of them, it's because the clitoris is being stimulated at the same time, either externally with a hand, with their partner's pubic bone pressing against them, Mm -hmm. or internally, again, because the clitoris tissue extends uh, uh, deep, deep down below the surface of the skin. So we need to completely debunk that idea that vaginal orgasm is the only way to orgasm. It's a legacy of Freud, who Mm -hmm. in the 1800s, um, I think, he was the father of patriarchy in a lot of ways yes. because of his theory, which stated a woman who is only reaching orgasm through clitoral stimulation, that's a sign of immaturity. And it's a sign of kind of arrested development at a certain stage. And there there was a long legacy of uh, Freud's teachings at the time that unfortunately still percolate to this day. Mm. Okay. And while we're debunking things, because this is something you do so beautifully. If four out of 10 women are experiencing low desire, we know that many of them are still having sex, even though they're having low desire. And so again, this picture in our head that desire is the only reason that people should want to have sex. And it's some kind of dysfunction if you're having sex that wasn't prompted by this spontaneous desire. Can you tell us what the research says about the number of reasons people actually have sex and what knowing that does for us? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So believe it or not, 
there are 237 different reasons that people give for having sex. And I'm not making that number up. It actually came from research out of um, Cindy Meston and David Buss's lab uh, about 10 years ago. And so they interviewed many thousands of people and they said, why do you have sex? And then they um, interviewed others and they did this a number of times and distilled the thousands of reasons that people give down to 237 core reasons. And when we look at women, the reason, because I was in the mood or I had desire, was not in the top five list at all. Hmm. It was somewhere in the top 10, but most definitely not in the top five list. That uh, tells us that a lot of people are having sex, not necessarily because they're in the mood at the outset. They might have other really good reasons. I want to have an orgasm. Uh, I want to connect. I want to celebrate a birthday. Um, I want to feel powerful. I want to access my pleasure. Hmm. Um, I want to change my mood from angry to relaxed. Um, Again, that's just a a small smattering of the 237. Hmm. But then the other thing that we know, and this is thanks to a lot of the really good research that's been done, is if the encounter is pleasing to her and she's present and she starts to feel vulnerable in a good way, that that gives rise to desire during the encounter. Hmm. So I see a lot of women who say, I'm not in the mood at the beginning. It's kind of like going to the gym. I know I, sh- I know I should, I know I want to, I know when I get there and I start lifting those weights, I feel great. And at the end I say, oh, can't wait to do this again. <laughs> and there are some, it's a bit of a cheeky example, but it's, no, it's, it's no, Abby's right laughing. On. Abby's laughing because that's the story of our life. Like we right. look at each other and go, we should do this more often. Every time, I literally, why don't we do this more often? This is so I great. literally say, is, is that, that was a good idea. The gym or sex? I yeah. don't know what sex. you're referring to. Sex. Sex. I don't go to the that gym, was- Dr. Brado. I do not go to the gym. <laughs> that was a good idea. It was a good idea. Didn't seem like a good idea, but it is. how delicately you hold your baby, you dress your baby, and you feed your baby. We do that because they're adorable, of course, but also because their skin is delicate. Know this. There is only one diaper brand that we recommend to give you the gentle protective care your little one needs, and that's Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Their Swaddler's diaper absorbs wetness better versus the leading value brand, and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection to keep your baby's skin dry, healthy, and beautiful. And when you use swaddlers in tandem with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, you'll keep your baby's skin healthy. The wipes are made from 100% plant-based cloth, and you won't have to worry about tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets it's match. That's right. So download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. I think we tend to assume that people who are not having sex are struggling, right? And for me, interestingly enough, um, Glennon and I, sometimes when we go through our droughts, I sometimes worry that the lack of sex means that we are struggling, but that's not how I feel inside my body. That's not Mm -hmm. how I feel in my heart. I'm like, I I mean, our life is 
perfect in my mind. And then sometimes during those droughts, I'm like, but are we going to, are we going to be able to last or survive the kind of drought that we're going through sexually? I mean, I don't know how, can you just share with us that we are not going to get divorced ever because <laughs> we're having droughts? <laughs> Truly, based I think on that, your research, Dr. Brado. Yeah. Can you just like my, let them, right. That's my big oh, concern. Right. I'm like, everything's perfect. And sometimes right. when we go through the droughts, so yeah. is that normal? just, is that just a shoulding? Like, is, yeah, is, is it that's tr- a shoulding, right? Okay. I, sh- I should feel horny all the time because our life is perfect. And because I'm so in love with my partner and we've got all these wonderful gifts in our life, that, that is the shoulding. And that's that kind of, you know, underlying worldview and beliefs that we take on, right? Girls should do this. They should not do that. Relationships should look this way. You should have sex a certain number of times per week. And so while I can't promise you, you know, eternity in, in your, or any relationship, although I feel pretty good about eternity in your relationship. um, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) What I, what I can say is it's worth us investing the time to pay attention to, are we shoulding? Mm. Are we taking on and are those statements of I should do this, we should do that, my relationship should be a certain way, and are they kind of manifesting in our li- in our life, in our relationship, and, and in the bedroom yeah. as well? Because it's like, we will talk about this. We'll say, oh God, are we, you know, how long has it been? Are we, we should be, but then we'll look at each other and say, okay, but what is? Like if we right, get yeah. out of what what should what we should be, can we talk about what is? Because I feel like right. we're closer than ever and we're happy. And so that's the barometers we have are sometimes messed up. And I do think that we are trained to focus on frequency as the barometer of whether or not our relationships are sexually okay. So, because we all do that. I mean, how many times have I Googled, like how many times a week am I supposed to be having sex? So- <laughs> I know we're not supposed to focus on that, but, but but real quick, is there a number that we're supposed to be having sex? Oh, yeah. I get really anxious when I'm asked that question, which I'm asked all the time. And here's the problem in research. In research, when you read a paper, it presents the average or the mean, but then it shows you the range. Mm. And the range is enormous, right. right? So the range says there are plenty of very, very happy couples, regardless of the gender of the couple. Um, that have sex five or six times a year, right? So once every two months and the quality of those encounters is amazing. And the foreplay between the encounters, because Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of extended foreplay that starts when a sexual encounter ends and goes all the way to the next encounter, even if it's two months from now. Love it. So there's there's research that shows that. And there's, there's research that shows there's a lot of unhappy couples that are having sex every day. So if you have to have a number, if you, if you absolutely insist and hold me to it, the research does say about once a week, and that's for couples in established relationships. And that's not necessarily penetration. That's any kind of sexual activity. Okay. And is that also lesbian couples or does that include yeah. lesbian? It does. Yeah. So, you know, here, here's where I think we've been um, uh, making some real strides in the research is being a lot more inclusive, not just to look at um, sexual orientation, diversity, but also gender diversity. Mm-hmm. So a lot more work on trans and non-binary people and trying to understand, are they really different? It turns out they're really not all that that different. And while we're on that topic, I, I do want to take the opportunity to debunk a myth as well. And that's lesbian bed death. Mm. Lesbian bed death has been debunked 
years and years ago. It, oh, it was that's this, great. It was this notion that, you know, two women in a relationship, it's all about companionship and the sex doesn't matter and sex stops after a few years. And it's unfortunate because that notion, it really took hold without any scientific basis for it at all. And there have been mm. so many studies that have found the opposite. Wonderful. Ah. And and listener, Pod Squad, you will remember lesbian um, bed death from what I taught you it was, which is lesbian deathbed. I said it wrong <laughs> right. months ago. It is not a deathbed. Okay. And and turns and out not a bad, bad death, death either. either. That's right. It's neither, neither of right. those things. Okay. We're going to come back with Dr. Brado on Thursday and we're going to answer all kinds of practical questions about how to bring how to have better sex, really. But before we go, I have a, a, a question for you. If we are not supposed to be using frequency to measure the vitality and health and, and fullness of our sex lives, what should we be using? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to use this as a platform to champion pleasure. Mm-hmm. And pleasure has been the missing conversation in the last hundred years of women's sexuality, which was has been focused on, uh, you know, frequency, and then the whole era of testing Viagra for women, mm. and no one asked about pleasure, and no one investigated how to improve pleasure, and we're finally starting to say pleasure is it's the missing link. It's the next frontier. Mm-hmm. How we measure that is completely elusive to all of us in science, but we do know that when women talk about really satisfying sexuality and they talk about that moment when they were so present and so in sync and, and nothing else mattered, they're talking about pleasure. Mm. So that's oh a God. barometer. That's the barometer. So we stop asking, um, are we doing it enough? Are we whatever? And the question is, am I experiencing pleasure? Correct. And, and your pleasure is different from your partner's pleasure. So don't use the same barometer for that. Mm. <laughs> use different ones. And I this is everything. This is everything. This answers the question about the political question. This answers the question as to stress being the biggest contributor to our sexual dysfunction, stress being the biggest contributor to our disproportionate lack of enjoyment of our lives leads to the lack of enjoyment of our birthright, which is pleasure and sex leads to the decentering of us as people worthy of the equal protection of the mm-hmm. law. Mm-hmm. It's everything. Yeah. It's seeing myself as worthy of pleasure, as someone who deserves to want to have sex mm-hmm. is the beginning stage of all the cocentric circles around it. Right. And let me just insert as someone who is also deserving of the ability to say no, and that no is respected yes. because it does. this does not bring me pleasure. Mm. And I know yes. we haven't talked about sexual coercion, but one in three women do experience sexual coercion mm-hmm. where pleasure is absent. Pleasure is stripped from them. Mm-hmm. Okay. When we come back on Thursday, I want to talk, start and talk about, um, it's going to be an amazing Q and a, we have so many questions for you from our pod squad about sex. And I cannot, I love these questions so much. I cannot wait to hear your answers. 
And I want to start though with a question about what a woman does who is in a situation where her partner isn't addressing her right to pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and what a script might look like to start a conversation about that. And maybe because she's never talked about it. Right. Maybe it might be she doesn't know who you, he or she isn't interested in it, but she doesn't know theoretically how to talk about sex. Right. All right. So we will be back on <clears throat> Thursday with Dr. Lori Brado. Thank you all. We can do hard things like talk about sex. See you soon. Bye. I give you Tish Melton and Brandy Carlisle. I walked through fire. I came out the other side. I chased desire. I made sure I got what's mine And I continued to
Can Do Hard Things is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Especially be sure to rate and review the podcast if you really liked it. If you didn't, don't worry about it. It's fine.